Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. The fabric of the museum is, is in conversation with the objects in the collection. From the earliest cave paintings to the megalithic structures of prehistoric times, humans have sought to chronicle their existence. And because of this urge to leave a legacy, we're able to dig through the past to unravel the stories of our ancient and not-so-ancient ancestors. In fact, it's often in our most recent history that we find the most fascinating truths. Artwork from this century or the last can paint a stark picture of how much our world has changed in a short amount of time. Museums are, perhaps, the greatest storytellers, because they not only allow us to take a step back in time, they also offer countless opportunities to experience the emotions of very specific moments. With its tremendous collection of art, design and performance pieces, the Victoria and Albert Museum in London captures the emotion and vulnerability of creativity beautifully. It's here we learn of the decadence of the past, of the variety of stories artists have been eager to tell, of the important role of fashion in shaping our identities, and the colourful history of the performing arts. My guest today is Tristram Hunt, director of the V&A, which, as you'll probably hear, was in the middle of having work done when we spoke. Chapter 1. The Lives of the Objects In our first series, we spoke about objects as storytellers with mudlarking expert Lara Maiklam. So long as you know what that object is, you can make up anything about it. And every object has a hundred stories or or more to tell. And it's in uncovering the secret lives of these artefacts that we can learn the truth about the past. But that's no mean feat. Tristram is the editor of a book called The Lives of the Objects, which charts the history of items like Tipu's Tiger, The Great Bed of Ware, and a Shakespeare first folio. The book also explores the intricacies of building a collection. And I wondered, what is it like to be in Tristram's position, to have the responsibility of such a huge collection on the scale of the v In a sense, it's at the heart of the museum, the notion of custodianship, this, this very strong central idea that you are looking after the nation's collection, which you have to hand on to another generation. And so suddenly in early August, when it gets incredibly hot and some of the wax models uh, begin to look under threat and we have to move them uh, down to the basement to to cool them down, or the blinds aren't working and the sun is getting in, or there's an outbreak of moths. or So all of that kind of element which is very kind of prosaic but enormously important and we have we have brilliant people you know pest control and light and humidity and dust and all of those components because you can do as much as you like and and we do around interpretation and education and access and the rest of it but the objects need to be looked after and that's a really really strong and important part of what we do. As writers, we tend to dismiss objects as nothing more than props or business, as we call them, that serve characters or serve plots. But they're not. They're stories in their own right. And in the book, you talk rather movingly, actually, about the fact that we tend to think of objects as um, two points in their life, the point at which they were made and the point at which they came into our 
possession, but there's a huge gap in the middle, isn't there, where they, they lived, they had lives, they, they did things that we, we know very little about, do we? We tend to think of them only at those two points. That's what you talk about, isn't it? Yes, and the point of, of, of that book, of the, the lives of the objects, was to unpick the, the kind of multiple lives and identities that objects could have in many hands, over many centuries, in, in many countries, and, and how those meanings are shaped and then reshaped. And objects change, the identity of objects change, and the meanings of objects change to different people. So if we take, for example, uh, Tipu's tiger, one of the great uh, objects within the collection, commissioned by Tipu Sultan, the legendary kind of ruler of Mysore as a symbol of resistance to his children against British colonialism. And it depicts a tiger ripping the neck off a British officer. And it's a sign of how they will win the battle against colonial forces. But then when it's captured by the British, its meaning changes totally. And it becomes a symbol of British power that they have, in a sense, captured and neutered the tiger and brought it back to London to put on display. And that's one kind of passageway in the, in the life um, of the object, of which there are, you know, thousands around the museum. It's the, the Tipish Tiger is, is fascinating. And I wanted to talk to you about um, the notion of revisionism, because we've had a lot of, in the first series of this show, we talked to a number of people about the, the, the notion of slavery, and we're going to continue that into, um, into series two. There's a responsibility, isn't there, that comes with, curation which may often be difficult because what these objects represent and where they were where they were rooted but we also have a responsibility to tell the truth don't we no matter how difficult that may be to stomach absolutely and it becomes really complicated um we we, we have a a collection by um which is origins in, in in the collection of a man called ralph bernard Ralph Bernal was the son of Isaac Bernal, um, who was, as they used to say, a West Indian merchant. He, was a, he, he made a lot of money through slavery. His son uh, becomes a member of parliament um, and inherits huge amounts of money from his slave-owning father. But he's a very interesting figure in terms of the history of Anglo-Jewish uh, relations because he's, along with Lionel de Rothschild and other, he's part of that, that moment when the Jewish community are kind of anglicised and are accepted by uh, the British establishment. So you've got within his collection, which goes from ivory to jewellery, um, to uh, ceramics, to stained glass, to glass, um, a story of slave-owning wealth, of Anglo-Jewry, um, and actually the history of design. And the question is, what, what do you foreground? Um, what's most important about that? And today, people are much more interested in the slave-owning wealth, and, and understandably, but there are also many people who say, oh, hold on, the contribution of the Jewish community to the building up of some of the great national collections also hasn't been foregrounded. So how do we, how, how do we emphasise those identities and, and histories. I think what's important is that we do as much research and historical scholarship, for example, around slave money and how it influenced the collections. But we also understand, whilst there is great interest in that at the moment, 
there are kind of broader uh, histories to these objects, which also kind of warrant understanding as well. Yes, and the, the importance and the narrative that surrounds the objects must surely change over time, just depending on, you know, the prevailing sentiment and what's, um, you know, what's in the popular consciousness. Do you find that the way that you manage the exhibition needs to reflect changing trends? Very much so. Um, you know, we, we are here to serve the public. We are here to allow and encourage the public to understand their collections. And today, you know, the public is rightly more interested in provenance, it's more interested in global histories, it's more interested in multicultural histories. So how do we bring those components out of, of a collection's history to a, to a modern audience? We can also, you know, we also know that there's great interest in photography and fashion in parts of the collection today, which bring in multiple audiences to a museum of decorative arts, which normally they wouldn't necessarily uh, find their way into. So we, we have a responsibility to make ourselves as popular as possible. And, and in a sense, that's not a deviation from our founding mission. You go back to the 1850s and 1860s, when museums like the South Kensington Museum, the V&A came into being, but the Potteries Museum in Stoke, the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery, Nottingham uh, Castle Museum, they always had this very strong idea of being the people's galleries, of being as open and popular and democratic as possible. And, you know, we should embrace that, in my view. Chapter two, the fabric of the museum. As the meaning of objects changes over time, I wonder what impact this pandemic will have on our perspectives of historical and current artefacts. I have no doubt that in the months and years ahead, literature and film will be extracting all it can from what has unfolded. But although it might seem like an obvious direction for your work, perhaps you could consider doing something different. Create your world in the knowledge that our feelings towards the objects in our lives have changed. Your travel card and work lanyard may be good examples. Things you never lived without before might now lie untouched and forgotten, but they still tell a story. In your work, you could play on the juxtaposition between objects from the recent past and how they are now perceived in a world that has been reshaped. As countries dip in and out of wide-scale lockdowns, we're already beginning to reevaluate the importance of certain things in our lives, particularly the arts, which continues to tread water. Even institutions like the V&A haven't escaped hardship. In a sense, it, it goes back to your idea of, of objects as kind of business as props, because whilst in and of themselves we have a responsibility to care for them, they only really then come alive in that interaction between object and, and public. Um, and the galleries were fine, but we felt like a mausoleum. We were a kind of necropolis. Um, we were a kind of, you know, dragon's horde rather than this, this open museum. Um, and we're, we're now back up five, over five days a week. You know, obviously you have to pre-book and all the rest of it. Um, and the numbers, um, you know, 15%, one five percent of what they would be normally. So on the one time, on the one hand, it's a great time to visit. You, you, you'll, you'll have the museum to yourself. But we, we miss the buzz and we miss some of the kind of energy around it. But it's, you know, it felt very sad to be closed for 163 days, the longest period of closure uh, we've had in our history. Um, and we stuck a lot online. We did kind of digital tours of exhibitions. We did maker days for, for school kids and all the rest of it but 
we're a place of gathering, we're a place of social interaction. And I think that's more important than ever. So people think, well, this is a safe place I can go and just be in and amongst with other people in beautiful environments, looking at collections that belong to me. Um, that seems really important. Yeah, and it is a beautiful environment. And I'm often struck by how important the fabric of the, of the museum is to the collection. I, I, I said to someone the other day, it's, it's so much more than being, you know, something that keeps the rain off the antiquities. It, it really is part of your story, isn't it? From, from before you were known as the v Museum. Very much so. The, 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 the fabric of the museum is, is in conversation with the objects in the collection. And just as you look on the outside and you see this great kind of, these sculptures of great makers of Chippendale and William Morris and Josiah Wedgwood, you, you, you go into uh, the museum and the way that the galleries are built with echoes of the great exhibition, which was obviously our founding uh, uh, moment, the incredible kind of deep red, kind of Lombardy Italianate brickwork which connects us to the Royal Albert Hall, speaks to that kind of mid-Victorian civic moment. And then what is now the Majeski Garden, this, this Italianate uh, uh, garden, a really a beautiful place where in the summer, the kids come and paddle. And we're, we're the most romantic museum. We have more uh, engagements in our museum than I think any other museum in the UK. Oh, really? um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a kind of, that sense of, of, of a beautiful environment in conversation with the objects. And I was so determined that when we reopened that, yes, it's got to feel safe and secure, but you didn't want to feel like you're queuing at Tesco's. You, you, you had to have a sense of beauty and elegance and space uh, as you made your way through the museum. It was, it, it's funny because uh, obviously you and I can see each other on camera and you can see that I'm wearing glasses. So with a face mask, it, it can be quite difficult. And when I first wandered into the museum, you know, my glasses fogged up and I, I had to sat there just to just to get my breath back as I'd, I'd run out of the rain um, and, and, set, and settled in. And I just kind of had this really weird sensation when my glasses cleared and I was staring at this stunning Rodin. And, and just being, you know, blown away. Even though I've been to the VNA several times, there's something about that initial hallway that just takes your breath away, isn't there? And I, I, it wasn't just me. There were so many people. People were sketching. People were taking photographs. People were just stood, you know, with their head in the book and then looking at, at the object. There was, it's not too much to say, there was, there was reverence towards the art that was on display. Yes, and I, th I think people had felt deprived of it. And they've been told what to do for so long by, you know, curated tours and predictive capitalism and algorithms. And just to sit there and stare at the Rodin for half an hour if you want, and then go and stare at the Ardeville carpet for half an hour if you want. And that's it. And that's enough. You know, <laughs> in a sense, you don't need more than that. But you've chosen to do that. You've kind of concentrated. You've found the sort of connection to to an object and thought about it and other things um, and, and can then come back again in a couple of weeks and, and find something else. And that, and again, what I wanted to have, and it, it's no criticism of colleagues, I didn't want to pres prescribe tour. There's no single route through the uh, museum. Uh, you can go to the jewelry gallery, you can go to Europe galleries, sculpture, you know, do, do, do as, you, as, as, as your kind of desires wish. Chapter 3. The People's Collection
I'm sad to say that at the time of broadcast, the V&A is closed once again to the public, so you'll have to wait just a little longer to feel the magic that I felt simply staring at the Ardabil carpet with very few other people around. But hopefully this wait will invigorate you with a new sense of appreciation for the collection. After all, this is a collection that belongs to the people, that allows each of us to draw our own conclusions about the objects we see, to explore the narratives in ways that are deeply personal, something that Tristram is very keen to encourage. Absolutely. And, and again, it goes back to the founding origins. You know, the, the V&A was the first museum to have gas lighting so that working people could visit after work, in the evening, enjoy the galleries. First to have a cafe uh, so that, um, again, you could have an enjoyable day out. First to have labels so that you didn't have to buy a catalogue, actually. You could understand... Uh, these objects for yourselves and you know the interpretation shifts and changes and what's interesting then about the cast courts uh, which are the the plaster cast replicas of of great works of predominantly European monuments and statuary is that we're now increasingly interested in the artisans who made the plaster cast copies and beginning to think of them as artists uh, alongside as it were Trajan's column or Michelangelo's David as, as, as great works in and of themselves um, and for somewhere like the, the cast courts, you know, where we can't fly to Rome or go to Paris or visit Florence at the moment, to go and wander in those rooms, which was always the idea, again, working people who couldn't travel the world could see these great objects for themselves. Again, that seems to have a, have, have a power and a connection today, which is important. When you think about the future of, of, of the V&A, uh, you know, hopefully past the ridiculous situation that we have at the moment, what, what, do, you, what do you hope for in terms of the collection's future? I, I definitely think we have, we have more work to do um, unpicking the colonial and imperial histories behind the collection and the nature of the collection, particularly our South Asia collections, which have their origins in the East India Company. There's a lot of interest in that and we, we should... Um, uh, we should respond to that. I think what we, you know, our, our big plan in, in, into the future, kind of long, long into the uh, future, is, is to think about a 19th century gallery which brings together particularly collections from sub-Saharan Africa which haven't been given the space that they deserve within, uh, within the museum. But what we're also doing, and this is a really big project for the coming years, is building a new museum in East London in Stratford on the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park, and also a new what's called Collections uh, and Research Centre. So to go back to this discussion about objects, what we're creating is a space where you can wander the reserve collection of the V&A. So all those items that are not in the galleries and curated within the galleries, and see for yourself the hundreds of thousands of objects which are currently hidden away in storage in Blythe House in West London. So to have that idea of open access storage as a visitor experience, to enter the treasure house yourself, to enter the wonder house uh, yourself and see these objects, you know, hundreds of doorknobs, mirrors, you know, covers, ceramics, all, all, all of that for yourself is really, really exciting. So it's, and I think people have this great appetite to be behind the scenes, to understand what's going on with conservation and restoration, to, to see as, as scholars do, the kind of range of objects and the comparison and analysis uh, between them. So it, it's it's opening up those those objects in, in a much more vernacular and democratic way. 
And the V&A, the, the collection that is on display is vast. I'm guessing that people would be shocked if they knew how much else we had at our fingertips. That's just, um, you know, so if we can get it out onto display, you can almost curate your own collection, can't you? But would we be surprised, do you think, to know just how much you've actually got in storage? Yes. I mean, I, I mean, huge um, archives, um, for example, theatre performance, all the Royal Court archives, you know, regional theatre um, archives, tapestries, tapestries as far as the eye could see, Mark, uh, which are currently kind of rolled up but deserve to be on show, stage sets, you know, remarkable um, electrotypes uh, from the 1870s and 80s, uh, furniture, and then, and then textiles. I mean, I was just looking at some... 18th century leopard print fabrics the other day. Uh, who would have thought they'd be doing those then uh, in, our, in our cloth workers' centres? So I, I think when, when all of that goes on, on, on show in, in a much more kind of open and accessible way, they'll be real interested. Well, on that note, Tristram Hunt, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Mark. A massive thank you then to Tristram Hunt for joining me on the podcast. And to recap, what have we learned? No matter what you know about an object now, that knowledge is based on modern sentiment. Ivory is perhaps a perfect example. Once treasured and prized, now scorned. Remember, objects are more than props. You can build entire stories around the incredible lives they have led and how the meaning we afford them changes over time. Be adventurous with the stories you tell about objects. We often only think of objects existing in two planes the point they were created, and the point they were rediscovered. But during those intervening years, there's a whole history to their time on this planet. And when we attempt to uncover it, we only ever scratch the surface. Travel's probably not on the cards for most of us right now, so try using objects to tap into the cultures and histories of far-flung places instead. And finally, when life does get back to some form of normality... Don't forget that feeling of longing you have for the things you've missed out on. Remember just how important they are and how good it feels to visit collections like the VNN. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. And if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes are released weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Next week, we'll be hearing from University of Maryland professor Richard Bell, the author of Stolen, a story about five American boys who were kidnapped and smuggled into slavery. The scale of this epidemic of kidnapping of free black people into slavery from within the United States totally caught me off guard when I began this project. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing.